Welcome to the KRS Molecular Minute Podcast. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm the chairman of the Precision Oncology Alliance at KRS Life Sciences. I appreciate you dialing in for the KRS Molecular Minute. We come to you every few weeks and we discuss the intersection of clinical medicine and precision oncology and genomic profiling. Appreciate your support. Appreciate you dialing in today. Well, today I have the pleasure and honor of hosting Dr. Niraj Agarwal, who is a professor of medicine at the University of Utah, the Huntsman Cancer Institute. Niraj and I know each other for probably a decade right now, and I've always admired how not only he's very prolific writer, researcher, but he's really able to have the intersection between medicine, science, and investigation. And I really wanted to host Niraj and discuss with him uh, genomic profiling and sequencing in geomalignancies, how things were and how things have evolved. This is really very important. Uh, You know, when I was in residency and fellowship, chemotherapy was the only thing that was active in prostate cancer and really very ineffective chemotherapy, and things have changed. So I want to talk to Niraj how he views genomic profiling and uh, GU cancers. Now, you can find our podcast on all podcast outlets, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere. Please subscribe to the show, rate the show, write a brief review, and refer a friend or a colleague. And without further ado, Dr. Niraj Agrawal on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Well, such a pleasure to have one of the uh, oncologist friends and colleagues that I always aspire to uh, to be alike, and I'm I'm a big fan, Dr. Niraj Agarwal. Niraj, welcome to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. We appreciate you taking the time of your busy schedule. So for folks who don't know you, uh, which are probably very, very few segment of society, but for these folks, who the heck are you? I'm a medical oncologist who specializes in genitourinary cancer, so prostate, kidney, and bladder. And uh, I consider myself a clinical investigator. Uh, I spent um, a lot of time in, uh, in clinical trials all the way from phase one, phase two, phase three, have the privilege of uh, steering, chairing many of them. And uh, I, I think I like to describe myself as a clinical investigator who is passionate about developing new drugs, getting better, more tolerated treatment options for our patients with GU cancers to not only improve survival, but also quality of life down the line. And Niraj, recently you added an additional role to what you are doing beside being an investigator. Tell us about that new role and new promotion that you just received at the Huntsman Cancer Institute. So I was asked to take on this new responsibility, uh, what we call a senior director at the Huntsman Cancer Institute at the University of Utah, which is one of the 50 NCI designated comprehensive cancer centers. Uh, For people who do not know what a senior director is, this is a, a, a central leadership role, is also called as associate director in many cancer centers and reporting directly to the cancer center director. So our cancer center director, Dr. Nelly Ulrich, she is an internationally renowned uh, uh, translation researcher, and uh, I will be reporting to her. Uh, my job will be clinical research innovation. Clinical research has really expanded 
in our center alone, we have seen the clinical research expanding fivefold in last 10 years. So there are new challenges. Drug discovery has new dimensions now. We are, the pace is so much more than what it used to be. We are dealing with uh, uh, patents. We are dealing with uh, designing first in human trials within the cancer center. We want to do those trials. We are dealing with expediting drug discovery, but also dealing with the hurdles of regulatory bodies, how to deal with FDA, how to deal with, uh, how, I won't say deal is something is a negative connotation. I would say how to work with FDA, how to work with your own conflict of interest offices, how to deal with uh, or work with uh, innovation, patent. I think there's is so much nuance than it used to be. So I think, I guess my charge will be to streamline all those uh, uh, act, uh, activities on all those fronts. Ultimately, the goal will be to expedite innovation, drug development at the cancer center level. So Niraj, how, are you gonna, how, how do you spend then your time? I mean, with everything that you are doing, give us like a pie chart into your activities between education, administrating, investigation, seeing patients, all of that stuff. How do you divide your time? So obviously these are not in defined boxes. We do everything at the same time. The best part about being a clinical late translation investigator is your research happens in your clinic. So I think every busy clinical investigator has to be a busy clinician. They cannot be a laboratory-based investigator who has half-day clinic. So we all are busy clinicians and we all need support. If we want to do so many things, I think uh, I've been very fortunate to have such a supportive group of people around me, above me. My uh, bosses have been very supportive, division chief in the past, cancer center directors. And you have to have uh, adequate support whether it is in the term of scribes or nurse practitioners or nurses, you cannot expect a cancer center director or a, a division chief to have your faculty perform, produce at different levels without giving support. We are as good as the support we have. This is the, my favorite statement I give to anyone who seek my advice or any of my mentees or any of any anyone who is asking me for how I do that or what they can do in their career, I say seek support. That is the most important aspect moving forward. So in my case, I have very good support, fantastic support in my clinic in terms of nurses, nurse practitioners, uh, pharmacists. We have a pharmacist right in the clinic who helped me with the drug interactions. And then clinical trials office, I think we have the best clinical trials office. I want to repeat because there was a disturbance. We have the best clinical trials office in the country led by Dr. Teresa Warner, who is a good friend, uh, colleague, very supportive. So I think all those things are critical and they are more critical in the life of a junior investigator who is aspiring a career in clinical investigation. No, I, I tend to agree with you 100%. And then everything else just happened on the side. Yeah. You know, uh, the emails, meetings, they happen. I mean, as a GU oncologist, do you see the field migrating where you have to see either prostate or kidney or bladder? I mean, I, I think I see it depends on the institution. 
some of my colleagues will only see bladder tumors and some of see only kidney, some only see prostate and some they see everyone, every GU malignancy. Where is your practice currently? How is it? And how do you see it changing in the next five years? Unless you have 10, and I want to repeat again, 10 dedicated genital urinary medical oncologists. In my view, you should not even try to sub subspecialize in prostate, kidney, and bladder because patients are going to be there in the clinic to see one of the urologists. And uh, say a patient has localized bladder cancer, muscle-invasive bladder cancer, and need a discussion about new adjuvant chemotherapy. And you have two geo-oncologists who are specializing in bladder cancer, and both are not in the clinic on that day. Who is going to talk to the patient? We don't, it's a very competitive field outside. We are competing with very efficient, large practices, especially for the university hospitals, cancer centers. And if you don't see the patient, patient will go to somebody else or may not get new adjuvant chemotherapy. That's worse. So I think for now, we are seeing prostate, kidney, and bladder. We are genital urinary onco medical oncologists. Nothing beyond that. So I think it's fair to say, you know, when, I, when my memory takes me back to when I was a fellow and even a junior faculty and, and in residency, uh, believe it or not, uh, Niraj, when I was a resident, the biggest advance in prostate cancer, and I'm older than you, it's okay for listeners, the biggest advance in prostate cancer was mitoxantron prednisone where it demonstrated no survival benefit. It was actually approved for a palliative benefit. It wasn't, even the docetaxel trials were not even published yet. That was the biggest advance. Uh, it's, suffice it to say, we're in a very different era. As somebody who does this every day, I don't know, take us through, how do you see the field today? And where's the intersection, I guess, of precision oncology and genomic medicine when it comes to GU cancers, how has it evolved over the years? Uh, as a practicing oncologist, as a physician scientist, as an investigator, I mean, you've published a lot in that area, but I'm curious to see how you see the field today, tomorrow, and how does it compare to, to before? So as of now, as we stand today, every single patient with prostate cancer, for sure metastatic advanced prostate cancer, but I will say, even localized high-risk uh, patient with prostate cancer, because there are trials with PARP inhibitors for those patients who have biochemical recurrence, or we are developing trials for patients who have localized high-risk prostate cancer. So every single advanced prostate cancer patient and many localized high-risk prostate cancer patients should be undergoing comprehensive genomic profiling of the tumors. And in my view, uh, high-risk genetic testing because not only because we have approved drugs which are based on underlying molecular targets approved in the clinic now, available in the clinic. Those are PARP inhibitors for people who may not be aware. Both Olaparib and Rukaparib are approved, but this is just a start. We have Capiva assertive trial in metastatic hormone sensitive setting. We have multiple, I don't want to get into the nuances of how many trials are open, but there are registration trials which are open for newly diagnosed hormone-sensitive prostate cancer patients, which are based on underlying molecular targets. So there is no doubt that every single patient with metastatic prostate cancer, advanced prostate cancer, should be undergoing sequencing on the first day we see them. Because 
there are multiple reasons they may not get the sequencing done in time. Tissue get lost, uh, get old, not remain uh, viable for sequencing. Many patients have rapid disease progression. And by the time you send the sequencing out, by the time they get their results, they are not even, you know, they have lost their performance status for treatment with the uh, oral therapy. So prostate cancer patient is pretty straightforward. Every single person, patient should be undergoing comprehensive genomic profiling. How many actually are doing it? It's very uh, sad to see that oh, less than one third patients are undergoing comprehensive genomic profiling. So I think challenges to how to bridge this gap, how to make everybody aware that we should not wait for casted resistant prostate cancer setting to do those sequencing. So that is a challenge we have. Second, bladder cancer. We already have a targeted therapy, erdofitinib approved for patients with bladder cancer, metastatic bladder cancer. We recently published a very simple paper with uh, Dr. Petros Grievous, Dr. Monty Paul, Dr. Umang Swami, very simple paper looking at how many patients in the United States with metastatic bladder cancer get the first line therapy, second line therapy, and third line therapy. I know that with, very good paper. I love it. Yeah, go with ahead. The, with the caveat of this being a little older data set with 2018, when we only had, we did not have enfortimab, vedotin approved, we saw less than half of the patients ever received first-line systemic therapy, less than half. So we lose half of the patients right there at the time of diagnosis because the surgeons don't think there are good therapies out there for their patients. And they say, they'll tell that to the patients. And if they don't feel optimistic about the systemic therapies, patients go on hospice. So half of the patients don't ever see systemic therapy. So after that, only less than basically it was 18% patients got second line therapy and 6% patients got third line therapy. So we know that once these patients have disease progression, we lose more than half of them because of urinary obstruction, bladder cancer is aggressive disease, unlike, uh, uh, unlike uh, uh, maybe prostate cancer, for an example. When my patients are seeing two, three, four lines of therapies, Many of the bladder cancer patients, they progress so quickly that they lose their performance status. So we should be sending out comprehensive genomic profiling for all these patients whenever we see them first time, especially with FGFR inhibitors coming into localized bladder cancer settings. Monty Paul is leading the trial with uh, FGFR inhibitor in adjuvant setting. In, uh, in the context of SITC and uh, it is a big phase three trial I mean, like, how can you even know that patient will be eligible for the trial if you do not have the sequencing results available after the surgery? Holistically, right? But holistically, Niraj, do you think some of these mutations and genomic aberrations that we see in advanced disease exist in early stage disease? I mean, there's always the thought or the school of thought where some of the things that you see, even by the way, with the, you know, for PARP inhibitors and things, you may not see that in localized disease because some of these acquired mutations, if you will, happen later on. What are your thoughts there? So chances of new BRCA mutations happening or homologous recombination repair mutations happening, new ones, I would say less than 10%, but chances are that you will lose those patients or their original biopsies is more than 60%. This is based on my personal experience of being one of the steering committee members of the PROFOUND trial. 4,400 patients, more than 4,400 patients were 
pre-screened or screened initially and 30-40% patients did not even have the tissue for, uh, to allow them to have even sequencing to determine eligibility for the trial. And prostate cancer especially is more remarkable from that perspective because sometimes patients have localized prostate cancer and they don't develop metastatic disease for like three, four years, five years, even longer. So if you wait for castrate resistant disease, it's going to add another three, four years to the timeline. And what are the chances that tissue will remain viable for sequencing? So I think personally, if you look at caveats and pros and cons of both approaches, I would rather do the sequencing upfront and then if needed, do the sequencing again at the time of disease progression. Because we, are, we will be talking about androgen receptor mutation target, new AR variant targeting strategies coming up. There are, new, there are trials which are happening targeting new novel AR variants, which are, so you'll, you'll be looking for those variants as a part of comprehensive genomic profiling. And during that course, if patients have new BRCA mutations, they will be picked up. But at least we don't lose those patients. So I'm a very strong proponent of sequencing the tumors of our patients when I see them for the first time. In fact, in my clinic, we any new patient at the time of intake, we have a order sheet which includes CBC, CMP, uh, CT scans, bone scans. Now, comprehensive genomic profiling is listed right there. That has to be ticked, marked yes, before patient is seen by us in the clinic. And I think that is the only way to optimize our patient's eligibility for this highly well-tolerated targeted therapies down the line. You talked about the uh, bladder and prostate. Do you see the same trend in kidney or is it less uh, valuable for kidney? In the kidney cancer, we already have trials ongoing, but we do not have anything in the clinic. So you can always argue, do we need sequencing upfront or not? I would say answer is yes. I do comprehensive, I, I uh, talk to my patients, every single patient with advanced cancer, any advanced cancer, whether it is adrenal cancer, whether it is uh, penile cancer, whether it is kidney cancer, I know we don't have targeted therapies approved for them, but then also the results of the comprehensive genomic profiling may open new avenues for treatment for those patients through clinical trials. So I think in my view, every single patient with any advanced cancer should have the opportunity to hear about the pros and cons of comprehensive genomic profiling from their doctors or from their providers. So Niraj, I, I, wanted, uh, I also want to be very respectful of your time. We, we talked very broadly. I wanted you to choose an example, just an example to listeners where could be the profound, could be some other trial that you, you participate in. Gosh, I mean, you participate in so many trials, you've led so many studies. Can you bring the general description you just mentioned about this home by providing an example so listeners can understand what you mean? Or the sequencing. I think you mentioned profound, you mentioned... Uh, the bladder cancer, but can, can we can you choose any example where we go a little bit into detail? So at least we can just have an example to listeners so they understand the importance of that, I guess. Yes. So for example, in the metastatic castration sensitive prostate cancer, which is a newly diagnosed prostate cancer, which is metastatic, 
we have the amplitude trial open, Janssen trial, abiraterone plus minus neraparib. We already have capiva sertib trial open, target, which is using an AKT inhibitor for patients with P10 deficiency. And even P10 is intact. I'm not sure about, I, I'm not able to recall the design of the trial. If they stratify based on P10 deficiency or only select patients with P10 deficiency, but there is a trial open for patients with P10 deficiency. There is, uh, based on what I have heard, there may be more targeted therapies. Obviously, I know about them, but I don't want to put that out in the public domain, not knowing how much, how long it will take before public announcements of those trials. At least three more targeted therapy trials are coming. Now, you are a passionate oncologist sitting in the clinic, and you are trying to decide which trial will be most suitable to my patient? Even though you don't have PARP inhibitor approved in first-line setting, you have to choose for your patient whether patient is going to get a PSMA-targeted therapy or whether the patient is going to get simple docetaxel versus uh, uh, abiratinone and zolutamide. Or there is a frail patient who is seems like high risk of fall, is already has cardiovascular disease, and you're contemplating whether you need to really, you really need aggressive intensified therapy. And we just published that SPOP mutation was associated with much better outcomes in these patients in European urology, uh, in, in, in collaboration for institutions, including Dr. Emmanuel Antonorokis, Dr. Alka Vashampayan, Dr. A.G. Alva. So good, pretty good team from Hopkins and Michigan. We showed that SPOP mutation was associated with better outcomes. Prognosis was good. The median progression-free survival, overall survival. So if I see that SPOP mutation in, my, in the comprehensive genomic profiling, I know without prospective validation, I cannot endorse that for treatment, treatment uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, selection. But if patient is asking, doc, really, can I avoid these aggressive therapies because I'm already frail, I already have five other medical conditions? I will feel a lot more assured if I see that SPOP mutation. This is a great example. Thank you very much, Niraj. What do you do for fun, my friend? What do you do for fun? Like, you know, I mean, you're, uh, despite all of this, you know, I mean, I see some of your pictures on social media where you are hiking, diving. I don't know what you do. What, uh, what, do, you, what do you do for fun? How do you do the work-life balance? Yeah, so work-life balance. That's a fantastic question. I have the most supportive family I can think of. I think uh, no, uh, it's easy to say, uh, uh, but uh, the, the gravity of this question is much higher than we can imagine. You know, how do we do work-life balance? I think all of us who are passionate investigators, for us, this is the best part of our life, investigation, right? But we do have other activities, like you said, hiking and biking and and, and I think all of this is possible, is only possible, I would say, if we have a very supportive family. So my wife is a very busy hematopathologist, molecular pathologist, has a good, success, great, successful career. And I think key is to help good. each other. So she's the smarter one of the couple. That's good to know. Okay, keep going. Yes, yes. Especially hematologists, hematopathologists who are dealing with, like, like you, Chadi, you know, you are a hemato hematologist, lymphoma expert, Right. We don't want to rub it in, but you can keep, keep yes, going. Yes, exactly. We are just starting to deal with molecular, uh, molecular analysis of the tumors, which you, have doing, which you are doing for the last 20 years, right? 
So I think the key is to have uh, uh, great support from the family and be helpful to each other. I think that's where it starts. But I think, as I uh, alluded to, that as I mentioned early on, it is very, very important, critically important to have bosses who really do not expect from you without giving anything. So getting proper support from your, from your bosses, whether it is cancer center director or division chief or department chair is the most critical thing for the success of an investigator, professionally speaking. So beyond family, family is most important, but after that, it is the support. And I would like to repeat, if you are not getting that kind of support, feel free to look for a job. Then you are not being valued in your institution. Niraj, thank you so much. This was a really, really wonderful. Uh, this, you know, hopefully we air this podcast in a couple of months, but by then we'll be around ASCO's time or a little bit after ASCO. I would have loved to tell you that I'm going to see you at ASCO live, but um, unfortunately it's going to be another Zoom at ASCO. But uh, 2022, 2022, ASCO GU and ASCO. Yes, looking forward. Thanks for having me on board. It's such a pleasure to learn and talk to you always, Chad. Thank you so much, Niraj. Thanks, folks, for joining the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Appreciate Dr. Agrawal joining us today. I appreciate your support. And I would like for you to tell me how we are doing on this podcast. You can send an email to cnabhan at karisls.com. That's cnabhan at karisls.com. Uh, again, we tackle the issues of clinical medicine and genomic profiling and sequencing and try to answer questions that are very relevant to patient care. At the end, our patients are our ultimate stakeholders. Okay, folks, I appreciate your support. And until next time... Take care.